0: Hello, I'm Jared Manning, a pastor at Grace Bible Church in Clute, Texas, and I want to welcome you to the audio version of our Systematic Theology course. This is part of our Grace Seminars, held one Saturday each month from 8 a.m. to noon. We'd love for you to join us if you're able. Uh, You can find dates and register at connect.gbctx.org under Events or on our Facebook page under Events. There's no cost to join, and breakfast and class materials are provided We recognize that not everyone's schedule allows you to attend, so we want to make these available to you via podcast. I hope you enjoy this course on systematic theology. Let's turn now to our first topic of the class, uh, the doctrine of the word. Um, Here we'll see why we believe that the Bible alone, sola scriptura, as the reformers put it, is to be our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith. Throughout our course, we will maintain two assumptions or presuppositions. One, uh, we assume or presuppose that there is a God, that he is triune, both sovereign and personal, and two, that he speaks or reveals himself to us. Um, that's not a cop out. Every worldview starts with a presupposition or even a series of presuppositions. For the empiricist, it's that our world is a closed box. But we can only know what we can touch, taste, feel, and that our senses are reliable guides. Um, and for the rationalist, it's that we're given a set of innate ideas in the mind, either because we're born with them or because the soul pre existed, and knowledge comes as we apply reason to those ideas. But for the biblical Christian, our main presupposition is that he is there and he is not silent. That's a famous title of a book by Francis Schaeffer, He is There and He is Not Silent. That God both exists and speaks is, in fact, one of the primary ways the Bible distinguishes the true God from all other gods. We're going to see that in a few texts. 1 Kings 18.24, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, and they watch as the one true God brings fire to a watered-down pit while the fake Baal, God, fails to answer. Um, You also see in Psalm 115.5, the psalmist says, "...their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands." They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Now, when we say the word of God, we don't merely mean the Bible. Uh, the Bible is simply the word of God written. The word of God would also include the power by which God brings all things to pass according to the counsel of his will, um, mentioned in Ephesians 1.11, including creation in Genesis 1.3 and John 1.3. It's his personal presence with his creatures. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 10 that the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. God's word reveals him. So to obey God's word is to obey God. To despise his word is to despise him, Isaiah 66, 2. We could even say God's word or speech is one of his attributes. He's a speaking God. That doesn't mean the Bible is necessary to his being, but Communication is. There's fellowship within the Godhead. In the same way God didn't have to create to be creative, he didn't have to speak to us in order to prove he's communicative. We take this for granted, but speech is God's free gift to us. One of the key forms that Revelation takes is scripture, God's special revelation committed to writing. So we start with the presuppositions that one, there's a God, and that he speaks or reveals himself to us. But how do we know that the Bible is God's authoritative word to his people? Do we merely cite 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? No, the Bible is God's authoritative word pervades the entire scripture. It's not isolated merely to one or two verses. Going back to the Old Testament, we see that the faith of ancient Israel was based on the authority of the written word. We need look no further than the Ten commandments, which God pinned himself on two stone tablets. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 5, 22, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. And then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. In entering into a covenant relationship with Israel, God gave the people his word. And as redemptive history unfolds, God consistently brings his people back to his covenantal word. And where is this word put? In the most sacred place, in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because it came directly from God. The rest of Moses' writings and the later prophetic writings were always regarded as no less divine, no less truly words of God than the words which God had written with his very own finger. The fact that man penned the words never affected the reality that their authority and inspiration were divine. We can look at Romans 3, 2, Acts four twenty five, Hebrews 3, 7, Hebrews 8, 8, and Hebrews 10, 15. Thus says the Lord from a prophet is equivalent to God speaking Directly, and the New Testament shares this same testimony of the Old Testament's divine authority. Jesus Himself treated the Old Testament Scriptures as absolutely authoritative. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus didn't come to abolish the Law or the Prophets, the shorthand way of speaking of the whole Old Testament, or to correct them, but to fulfill them. According to Matthew five seventeen, He not only has a high view of Himself, but clearly a high view of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus treated arguments from Old Testament scripture as having the final say. In fact, in John ten thirty five, Jesus states that the scripture cannot be broken, referring to the Old Testament. When Jesus said, "It is written," the discussion is over. A good example of this is when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to the devil when being tempted in the desert. Further, Jesus himself abided by the scriptures. We're told that he lived a perfect life according to the Old Testament scriptures. According to his own testimony, even his death on the cross happened because everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled, Luke 22:44). But the New Testament doesn't just testify to the authority of the Old Testament. It also recognizes its own authority on par with the Old Testament. So in Matthew 28, Jesus spoke to the disciples after his resurrection, and he seems to anoint them particularly to complete his teaching. In John 14 through 16, Jesus promises to send the disciples the Holy Spirit who will remind them of what he has taught them over the course of his ministry and lead them into all truth, including teaching that Jesus did not give during his earthly ministry because it was more than the disciples could bear. The disciples understood this as well. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says of Paul's writings that he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. The apostle Paul's letters are equated here with scripture. In 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul says, for the scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy in the gospel of Luke, which was not written by an apostle, but was clearly approved and affirmed by those apostles who were still alive. The unmistakable point is this. The Old Testament and New Testament attest to the scriptures as God's authoritative revelation to his people. The Bible comes to us in a unified package, which means we don't get to pick and choose what we like, like Thomas Jefferson did when he took out the miracle passages from the Bible and all the things that speak of God intervening in nature supernaturally. If it's God's word, we don't stand above it determining what we will and will not accept, but we stand underneath it as those called to humbly submit ourselves to it. One professor of mine once said, the Bible is the only book that you'll read that will read you back. We're called to humbly submit ourselves to the Bible. We don't stand over it and judge it. It judges us. Next, we want to turn our attention to the canon. This all raises the question of which writings represent God's authoritative revelation. Uh, That's the question of canon. Canon is a Greek transliteration of a Semitic word that means measuring read or rule or standard. Inherent in the discussion are a number of questions. First, how do we get these 66 books that we refer to as the Bible? If you want to study more in depth on this issue of how we got the canon, I um, highly recommend Robert Plummer's book, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. Uh, It's a very helpful volume, um, easy to read and search through with each chapter answering a question. But the historical question is this one, how do we get these 66 books? It consumes the airwaves of PBS or the History Channel, where the Bible's history is turned into some seedy political drama with backroom deals to get this book in or keep that book out. But there are more theological questions as well. So what's the relationship between canon and authority? Which came first? Namely, did the books themselves have an inherent authority that the canon merely recognized? Or did the church create the canon? And thus, did the church confer authority on the book by placing it within the canon? Or another question, is the canon closed? If so, why? These are the questions that we'll begin considering in the next hour. Thank you to the brothers and sisters of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for generously providing the material for this study.